Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today on the podcast, um, today's topic is one of those inside baseball sorts of things that maybe you've wondered about in the past and never really cared about. But when you're not just looking at inflation reports, but trading inflation or interpreting inflation markets, uh, or for that matter, other economic data, understanding seasonal adjustment turns out to be pretty important, but especially in uh, in inflation. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, but before we do, uh, our sponsor is, once again, Simplify ETFs. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing ETF shop democratizing access to the most sophisticated alternative strategies. With diversifying strategies like market-neutral equity long-short, Managed Futures, and Multi-Strat Quant, Simplify has a suite of compelling tools to help address the biggest concerns with the classic 60-40 portfolio. Check out their website at simplify.us. That's simplify.us. And you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Um, And now the trivia question, and then we'll get into the meat of today's uh, podcast. The trivia question, and I, I kind of like this question. It came up actually on a, something I was sort of interested in. Uh, I was curious about it, so I, I did a little search. But anyway, what important burial tradition originates from an order in 1665 from the Lord Mayor of London during a plague that was going on at the time? What important burial tradition originates from that order? Okay, and I'll tell you the answer at the end. But today I want to talk about seasonal adjustment because it's going to be important to be aware of this when it comes to inflation over the next six months or so, five months. The backstory here is that I got an email from a journalist that I've spoken to before, a really nice guy, thinks very deeply about inflation. And he mentioned one particular country, and I won't tell it because that might give it away. Um, where economists are expecting a full-year inflation rate that implies zero inflation for the balance of the year. Mike, he said, isn't that crazy deflation? We've been in this inflationary period and suddenly we're going to have deflation for six months. If we look at the index at the end of 2022 and we add the X percent that the economists are looking for, 3% or whatever year on year, then we can sort of back into the index number we'll have to have at the end of this year, and it's lower than we are right now. Again, isn't that sort of crazy? And my answer was that it isn't necessarily crazy because of seasonal adjustment. Uh, and actually, we have the same thing happening in the United States at, at the moment. And that's why it, it suggested to me that I should do a podcast on this, because I think there's going to be a lot of people who sort of look and say, golly, um, you know, we're looking to, we're going to have deflation over the next uh, several months. Uh, for example, the CPI fixing swap for December last traded at 3.27%, saying that, you know, as of the December CPI that we'll get in January, um, the market is pricing that the year-on-year inflation rate will be 3.27%. And so we can look at last year and see that we ended the year with a CPI index number of 296.797, 
you don't have to write all this down. There's no no test here. Uh, but if you want to, and you want to follow along in the math, 296.797. And uh, if you add 3.27% to that, that implies we'll end this year with an index number of 306.502. But the thing is, in a couple of weeks when we get the August CPI, we're going to see that the index figure right now is about 306.9. So again, the end of the year, it's supposed to be 306.5. And right now it's three, or after we get the August number, it'll be 306.9, which means that between August CPI and December CPI, we're going to get deflation. Isn't that crazy? And the answer, of course, is that it isn't, uh, or else this would be a really lame podcast. Um, the problem is that when we look at index numbers, we're looking at non-seasonally adjusted data, but we think in terms of what gets reported each month in the media, and that's seasonally adjusted. The seasonally adjusted change this month was 0.2% or whatever it was. That's always seasonally adjusted. So what does that mean, uh, and why does it matter? So... We'll get a little less wonky here, and I'll give you an analogy, because I think this makes it a little a little bit more clear what it is that we're trying to do with seasonal adjustment. Last weekend, I went to two baseball games. Uh, in the morning, I went to a Little League game where a kid blew away a hitter with a 40-mile-per-hour fastball. Wow, I said, that is super fast. I mean, the kid's eight years old. Then in the evening, I went to see a Major League Baseball game where the pitcher at one point threw a changeup that clocked in at, at 80 miles an hour. Wow, I said, that's ridiculously slow. And people in the Major Leagues are often throwing in the mid-90s. Here he is hitting an 80. So how can one, fit, one pitch be super fast, but a pitch that's going twice the velocity is super slow? The answer is that our sense of what is a fast or a slow pitch depends on what we were expecting at the time. When I went to a Little League game, I wasn't expecting to see an 80-mile-per-hour pitch. <laughs> uh, a 40-mile-per-hour pitch is really fast at one sort of game and really slow in a different sort of game. So you have to kind of know which game you're playing. We have to adjust our assessment of the pitch on the basis of what the underlying baseline is. And because I've been to baseball games before, I have some idea of what constitutes a fast pitch and a slow pitch adjusted for game type. Again, if I, you went to a Little League game and you were expecting to see an 80-mile-an-hour pitch, you would be like, these guys all suck. I mean, they're eight years old. <laughs> but not a single one of them is throwing faster than 40. These guys are horrible. And then you go to Major League games, you're like, okay, this is more like what I expected to see. But that would be silly, right? You have to compare. You have to know what the context is. What is the expectation, the bottom line expectation for that particular episode that you're looking at? We're looking at Little League or we're looking at a professional baseball game. Well, seasonal adjustment works the same way. So take existing home sales. Existing home sales is a great example of this. Every realtor, and I'm sure there are a bunch of realtors listening to this uh, podcast, Every realtor knows that home sales bottom just after the new year begins and then rise into the summer. I'm not talking prices. I'm talking the, the number of new of, of sales that happen in the market. And so sales rise into the summer, peak in June or July, and then drop, you know, then start to drop and decline all the way into the beginning of the next year. So there's this, you know, kind of 
arch that goes down, you know, starts low, goes up high into the summer, and then goes down to the end of the year. So on average, over the last decade, th- this is not a small effect. About 80% more homes are sold in June than are sold in February. 80%. So it's a, it's a, it's a really huge effect. So if you just look at the absolute level of existing home sales, it, it, it's this wild sawtooth pattern. Every year has this little arch. Um, so, and that makes the data hard to interpret on that basis. Uh, sitting here in August, there's a pretty decent chance that home sales will be a little bit higher than in July when we get that data in a little bit. But it's almost a guarantee that existing home sales in September will be lower than in August, as everyone goes back to school. And again, realtors know this. Realtors know that once everyone goes back to school, the pace of deals uh, slows uh, markedly. It's 10 or 20% lower. Since 2000, do you know how often existing home sales has been higher in September than in August? Once. Once out of 23 years have existing home sales, has the quantity of existing home sales been higher in September than it was in the immediately preceding month. And that was that was in 2020, which was kind of messed up in a lot of ways. And by the way, sales were only one half percent higher. <laughs> so it was just barely uh, not a decline. So usually sales are at least 10 or 20 percent in September relative to August. So then if you're trying to figure out if the housing market activity is strong or weak, does it help to notice that the September number just got crushed? Well, not really, right? Because we're kind of expecting it to get crushed. The question is, how crushed did it get? What you want to do is to say, compared to a normal September change from from August, was this a larger change or a smaller change? Or, or, Or some question sort of like that. And that's what seasonal adjustment does. So that when you see the existing home sales number for the next few months, and they give you a a, they'll report a seasonally adjusted annual rate, S-A-A-R. And, and that is exactly what it says it is, that they, they took the rate of sales, they adjusted for the, the month that we're talking about, and then they multiply by 12. Um, it is So that number won't automatically be down compared to August. It's going to give you a number that's as if all 12 months of the year were the same. So we'll add sales to months that are normally below average, and we'll subtract sales from months that are normally above average, and we kind of level the whole thing out, okay? And by the way, that's not a complete fix. Um, Economic data is inherently noisy. Retail sales, for example, depends not just on what month you're looking at, but, you know, how many selling days were in that month. So sometimes you'll look at a retail sales figure and it looks really strong, but it turns out that there were two extra selling days in that month compared to you know a normal month. Um, and and there are, so there are lots of economic statistics that are are really hard to finally seasonally adjust, and that's why economists are are sort of useful, uh, even because even though they can't forecast worth beans, they can at least understand this stuff and they can explain what it is that's it's, you know oh gee that's a strong number, but. We were expecting strong retail sales because there were more selling days. Um, Lots of stats are hard to seasonally adjust around the end of the year. Notable are the payrolls figures. You know, I always tell people, ignore January payrolls, probably February as well. Uh, But there there are are such massive seasonal adjustments to the jobs figure uh, that need to be made because of seasonal workers. Um, 
the adjustments are actually a multiple of the number of new jobs added or subtracted. So the whole game is what the seasonal adjustment was for all intents and purposes. And so that kind of swamps, you know, the actual signal. Um, and if that seasonal adjustment is just a little bit wrong this year, then you're going to get a, a, a weird jobs number. But let's go back to inflation because that's, uh, after all, I am not the retail sales guy and I'm not the existing home sales guy and I'm not the payrolls guy, I'm the inflation guy. For most of these economic stats, the, the casual consumer of economic data really doesn't, doesn't much care whether the data is seasonally adjusted or not seasonally adjusted. Um, you know, normal people just, you know, they, they, it, it, you know, they don't really care. Um, there's no reason to care about the non-seasonally adjusted number. But inflation people definitely care because what gets traded in the market what tips are based on is non-seasonally adjusted. Whereas what gets reported every month, the headline figure that gets reported is seasonally adjusted. It makes sense that tips are, and other inflation derivatives are, are NSA because that's the, the true price change, okay? We haven't added any adjustment to it. That's the, the actual observed price change. We know that prices have a strong tendency to fall in December. So we can adjust that number for reporting. And then when you see the official December CPI, it's no more or less likely to be negative than any other C CPI number, any other seasonally adjusted CPI number. But the reality is that prices did decline in that particular December. So bonds tied to inflation ought to reflect the reality, not the seasonally adjusted reality, not the massage number. It's a feature, not a bug, and that's sort of the right way to do it. Um, but it affects trading for sure, and it has impacts, and, and, and uh, uh, it shows up in, in other ways. Um, so, for example, um, and some of, you, a lot of, some of you won't care at all about this, but it's, it's, I, it is an interesting, and it's a, it's a phenomenon that happens because of the fact that tips trade a non-seasonally adjusted number. If you look at a whole list of tips, the whole tips yield curve, you'll notice that tips that mature in April very often have slightly higher yields than similar maturity bonds that mature in January or, or July. When the curve's super steep or super flat, it's a little bit hard to tell. Um, super steep or super, super inverted. When it's flat, it's fairly easy to tell. You'll get these little bumps every April. Uh, but so, for example, right now, if you look at the January 2026 and July 2026 tips, and you average their yields, then you get 2.47% today, right now, if you did this right now. But April 26, April 2026, which is right in the middle of those other two, okay, so you'd think it should be somewhere around 247, it's actually 257. It's, it's a full 10 basis points higher. Why is that? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a free 10 basis points if you just buy April instead of, you know, buying one of the others. Well, it happens because the inflation index that April tips mature to is the average of the January and February CPI prints because there's this little lag, right? While the January tips mature to the average of October and November. So in other words, the ape, so we have the January 2026 uh, and, and that final CPI will be based on October and November 2025. But then when we go to the April 2026, we'll include that December 
because we're now looking at January and February CPI. So we, we've now included a December that we know um, is a December that the other maturity doesn't have. Um, and that's a bad thing because we know December normally sees lower prices. So given a choice between those two bonds, I'd always rather have the January maturity that doesn't have to experience that, that print that I'm pretty sure is going to be negative in non-seasonally adjusted space. Um, so investors have to be compensated to hold the April. And in this case, they're compensated about 10 basis points to hold the April instead of the January or the July. Figuring out whether or not that's the right premium, whether it should be 10 basis points or 2 basis points or 20 basis points, is professional-level stuff, and no point really discussing that right here. Um, anyway, but let's, get, let's get back to the question of whether or not there'll be deflation over the balance of 2023. Because again, as, as I said, if you look at the derivatives market right now, it is pricing that there will be deflation between the August print, which we'll get in a couple of weeks, and the December print, which we'll get sometime in January. Um, and the answer is, it's not terribly unusual to see NSA deflation, especially when inflation is kind of low, in those last four months or so of the year. Prices generally rise in the U.S. from December straight into the summer driving season. Remember, we're looking at headline here, so we care about the price of gasoline. And then they have a tendency to decline uh, or rise less uh, from July or August to December. That doesn't mean if you have 8% inflation that, you know, you're going to have deflation between July and December. You know, that overall trend is going to, to um, sort of wash out that seasonal adjustment difference. But you might have then 10%, a 10% rate for the first seven months and then 6% for the for the latter five months um, within the context of an 8% overall. But anyway, but um, uh, anyway, so, but that is, that's, that's all NSA. If we seasonally adjust, and, and so what the swaps market is telling you is non-seasonally adjusted, yes, prices are expected to the extent that markets actually expect anything, but whatever, are expected to be roughly unchanged or slightly lower between August and the end of the year. Actual prices that you go out and shop for, on average, will be unchanged. Um, but once you seasonally adjust those numbers, then you actually get something that works out to be about a 2.2% annualized rate uh, on a seasonally adjusted basis. In other words, kind of right at the Fed target and, um, and similar to sort of some recent, the recent numbers we've been getting. To me, that still looks ridiculously cavalier for all the things that are going on. I don't think we're going to get – I think that expecting inflation to stop right here at 2% is, is really unlikely. But, but it's not crazy. Deflation would be crazy. <laughs> but, you know, 2.2% is just ridiculously cavalier. Anyway. Um, as a final aside, uh, the Kalashi market that I, I occasionally mention, um, it, they, those, trade, those markets trade right now on a seasonally adjusted basis. So they look more like what you expect to see from the report. And they settle to the number that's in the report rather than the, the number that tips um, uh, use. So anyway, that's all for today. 
I hope that wasn't too terribly confusing and maybe a little bit interesting. I, I, I when when I first had to go when I first started doing, I mean, I've always you know, watched markets and watched the economy and uh, and, and economic data and, and and you know, I had sort of a uh, a passing familiarity with with the seasonal adjustment, but once you start actually trading inflation, you become seasonal adjustment, you know, seasonal adjustment becomes your best friend. You really get to know it quite, quite well. Anyway, like I said, that's all for today. Back to the top, the answer to the, to the trivia question. And the, the trivia question was, what important burial tradition originates from an order in 1665 from the Lord Mayor of London during a plague at the time? Well, have you ever wondered why graves are traditionally dug six feet deep? Uh, I did. Um, somebody said, oh, I'm going to bury you six feet deep. And I said, that's a weird term. I wonder why we bury people six feet deep. And, uh, and the tradition stems from this order by the Lord Mayor of London. He ordered graves to be dug six feet deep. Why six feet? Well, no one seems to know. Some people think it's a rule of thumb that a grave should be dug as deep as a person is tall. But a six-foot-tall person was a very tall man back in 1664, so that seems a little odd. Uh, something, some... People think that uh, that was as deep as a grave digger could could stand and still throw dirt out of the grave with a shovel. That seems a bad reason for an order from the Lord Mayor. <laughs> Keep digging until you can't duck, throw any more dirt out. Obviously, we want the body to be buried deeply because you don't want animals digging them up and stuff like that. But why six feet? Well, we'll probably never know. And as it turns out, today, not all graves are actually dug to that depth. In many states, graves are only required to have, like, foot, you know, 18 inches of dirt over the top of the casket, um, which means that unless the casket is four and a half feet thick, the grave ain't six feet deep. So anyway, it's permanently ensconced in our references to being put six feet under. And, uh, and you can, you can uh, blame or attribute that to the Lord Mayor of London of 1665. Okay, that's all for today's podcast. Please like, refer, this podcast to other people uh subscribe uh write a review if you're so inclined you can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog follow me on twitter at inflation underscore guy or follow me on x i guess visit enduring investments if you have an inflation challenge and as always defend your money and if inflation is coming for you remember you know a guy